0: All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. In the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. Unto one he gave five talents, to another, two, to another one to each according to his ability. And then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. The same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy. Slave, you have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you Handed over to me two talents, and see, I've made two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed." So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one With the ten talents, for it is to all who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. When my oldest son Samuel was in grade school, um, he used to he used to collect. Pokemon cards? Pokemon, you know. It's a fairly inexpensive thing to do, which is a good thing because I was studying full time at U L and working on a teacher, teaching assistant salary. And so not having a lot of money, <clears throat> one of the ways that we tried to incentivize good behavior uh, to make up for the fact that we didn't have much money was to say, look, if you and your sister don't fight, and if you do your chores, then we'll take you to Walmart on the weekend to buy you some more Pokemon cards. (laughs) Though an obvious bow to late-stage capitalism, it was a pretty effective incentive program. It worked, and it was cheap. But on the one weekend, Susan had to work, and I was... I was working on an article which was going to loom large and landing a job as a tenure track professor, so I was really extra consumed. Anyway, Samuel came to me and he said, When when we going to Walmart to get the Pokemon cards? And at the time, we didn't really have a Walmart close by, so we had to drive all the way out to Westport Road and to Gene Snyder, to that one out there. That was the closest one. And like I said, you know, I was busy. So I told him, hey, buddy, look, I apologize. But I'm swamped here. I'm not going to be able to take you uh, this weekend. I'm sorry. Now, I knew he wouldn't like my answer, but I didn't know how much he didn't like my answer. In his defense, I mean, I told him earlier in the week that we'd head out to Walmart over the weekend to get those cards. And so his displeasure was surely understandable, but it was the intensity. I mean, he was ticked. He's stomping around, decrying the sad state of the world and how unfair, utterly unfair life is. And I would promised. And he'd been looking forward to this all week. I mean, you know how that goes, right? So I said, I I know, sweetie, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I'm super busy, and I I have to finish this. I'll take you next week. Now, I almost said, I promise, but I realized that that probably wouldn't help. It was then that he said something that sticks with me to this day. And if you've raised young children, you've probably heard it yourself, stomping up to his bedroom all the while protesting to the heavens, this is the worst day well, I took a moment. Took a breath. I collected myself. And I mean, as guilty as I felt, I, I wanted to say, sweetie, look, it, it, this is definitely not going to be the worst moment in your life. <laughs> and if I'm wrong, and this does turn out to be the worst moment in your life, then I'm going to die a happy man. But I couldn't say that. As a 40-something-year-old man at the time, I, I, I had a pretty good idea that he'd have much worse days than that if only he knew what he might have to endure as a human being on this planet. So, I mean, he would never say that about not getting a Pokémon card if he if he realized, right? But given his experience of the world to that point, I mean, well, how could he? As an adult, I, I mean, I had the advantage of having lived through many far worse days. I knew the pain of the world. But the, the, The the league championship series in 2003 when Steve Bartman interfered with a foul ball in the eighth inning. Help me out, right? I mean, that was close to the worst day ever. I I, I knew a bad day when we were moving all of our stuff down south so I could go to grad school and one of our chairs blew out of the back of a pickup truck on I-75 right outside of Detroit. That was a bad day. A bad day like when my family elected me to be the one to tell our dad that it was time to call in hospice. We all have some sense of the world, don't we? But for Samuel to understand this fourth-grade disappointment as a disappointment and not as a world tragedy, he would have needed a perspective that he could not have possessed at the time. I mean, such a perspective only comes with wisdom and experience, doesn't it? But, but, But perspective does make all the difference. The world looks one way, and then you wake up and you find out it's completely different. Uh, after the election in 2016, uh, Merlin Mann summed up my feelings pretty, pretty, pretty well. He said, uh, when I woke up on November 9th, after that got cosmic gut punch, it wasn't just that I felt like we lost the baseball game. I felt like I didn't even understand baseball anymore. That's perspective. You look at a picture, you, you, you very clearly see a duck, Right? And then after a bit, somebody says, that's not a duck, it's a rabbit. And, and, and now you can't unsee it. The picture doesn't change at all. Just your point of view changes. And I'm going to suggest to you that, once again, the traditional interpretation of this passage in our gospel this morning is a matter of perspective. Now, reading through the history of interpretation of this parable, we find two schools one school, which is the more long-standing traditional old school, uh, thought of this inter- uh, excuse me, this parable as a, as a lens onto the end times. After what appears at first glance to be a faithful service, the first two servants are ushered into the joy of their master like those who are faithful on judgment day will be ushered into heaven. That's a, an older take on this parable. It's an eschatological one, talking about heaven and hell. A second, perhaps more popular strain of interpretation over the past hundred years has this parable serve as a kind of morality tale, Right? Three servants are present, two are pronounced good and faithful after making investments, while the third is chastised for being wicked and lazy because he failed to invest and merely buried his master's dough in the ground. Now, this take on the parable essentially suggests that what Jesus is doing here is asking which kind of servant his hearers should want to be right? Do they want to be the good, industrious ones, or the lazy, shiftless one? And as with all morality tales, there's a right answer, and there's a wrong answer. Now, one way this interpretation has been used in the past century is to to liken the talents dispensed to the uh, enslaved people as precisely that, as as talents, right? Um, Or as my upbringing would have called them gifts, as in Are you making the proper investment of time and resources to invest the gifts that God gave you? Or are you merely a spiritual malingerer walking around keeping your talents to yourself? My mom was a big one for reminding us that God gave you talents, and if you don't use them, you will lose them. So you you grew up with my mom too. Okay, that's good. (laughs) As I say, both streams of interpretation have a long history, neither of which I'm saying is necessarily invalid. I mean, Scripture is multivalent, by which I mean it almost always has more than a single interpretation to any text. But what these two strains of interpretations fail to take into account, once again, is, is how Jesus' listeners themselves would have heard this story because their perspective on what Jesus was about, given the world in which they lived in, would have been different from the perspective of Matthew's readers over a half century later when they read it. Not to mention the perspective of modern readers, which is radically different from both Matthew's readers and Jesus's listeners. See, one of the lingering problems of the traditional readings of the parable of the talents really sort of revolves around the main character, right? As with so many parables, the assumption has sort of customarily been that the man going on the journey is God, right? Uh, Interpreters have largely taken for granted that God is the one who hands out the talents. But at least a couple of problems are raised by seeing God, in this case, as the dispenser of talents in this story. First, the idea of God enslaving human beings feels, well, gross. But beyond our general distaste at the thought of God owning exploited labor, we need to think about what the master is doing by giving these talents to the people that he has enslaved. What's going on there? Well, as we've discussed before, the only way to amass wealth in the ancient Near East was to take it from somebody else. Since land was the primary measure of wealth, and because the land had been apportioned by God to families, the only way to acquire more land was to take it from somebody else. I mean, land isn't something that you can manufacture like, like, like Pokemon cards or, or mega hats. They're, you get more by taking something. And because owning land was a necessary part of surviving in this part of the world, it was the way one measured one's worth often, the most common way to get more of it was to take it, right? And that happened mostly by foreclosing on defaulted loans. In other words, the master got his wealth mainly through calling in bad debts. He was a debt collector. Now in this parable, the master who's made his wealth this way is ordering those whom he's enslaved to participate in exploiting their neighbors to make the master even more money. The master co-ops two of the subje- uh, su- subjugated peasants in order to work to subjugate other peasants. I'm giving you this money to invest to make more money on the backs of other people. But, I mean, that, that's, it's difficult to put God in that role, isn't it? And second, if God is the master in this story, then the words of the third enslaved man are really difficult to, to sort of maneuver around, aren't they? Why? Well, because the third, when asked what he did with the talent that he'd been given, he says, well, master... I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Now, the word that the third man uses to describe the master is the Greek word scleros, from which we get the word sclerotic or sclerosis. It right? means harden, like hardening of the arteries. And in a non-medical sense, it means rigid and unresponsive. In Greek, it means harsh, merciless. Now, if the master in the parable is Scleros, as the third man suggests, and the master doesn't deny, then God as the master in this story feels problematic, right? It is difficult to imagine Jesus telling a story about God in which God described as old and rigid and merciless. That's why knowing the context and having perspective is so crucial in interpreting Scripture. Because though Jesus' audience would have immediately placed the master in the story as the bad guy, and the first two servants as collaborators, readers 2,000 years and 7,000 miles away, they have no way of knowing why that might happen in Jesus' time without a little detective work. See, because the f- when Jesus told this parable to his listeners, unlike some of the earlier interpretations, they would have seen the third servant as the hero. But talk about turning the duck into a rabbit, right? Because the third guy is the only one with the courage to speak the truth about a system that was rigged against vulnerable peasants. I knew that you were a merciless man. You've amassed that that land that belonged to other people and so you reap where you did not sow, literally. That is to say, you reap for yourself the crops that other people sow to feed their families. And you gather the good from places where other people scattered seed to make it through another time of scarcity. And what happens to the third man when he's presumed to have spoken truth to power? Well, as William Herzog has noted, the judgment is immediate. Having spoken the truth, the servant must be vilified, shamed, and humiliated so that his words will carry no weight. It's an oppressive elite who labels the servant wicked and lazy to stigmatize him and dismiss his implied criticism. The aristocratic master's address is not to be taken at face value, as so many commentators have done. It's an attack on a whistleblower. The servant has unmasked the joy of the master for what it is, the profits of exploitation squandered in wasteful excess, and he has demystified good and trustworthy by exposing the merciless oppression that they define. So the third servant is treated like whistleblowers regularly are treated when they lay bare the truth that the folks in charge don't want everybody to know. The master in this story has, as so often been the case throughout history, isn't necessarily a benevolent employer handing out generous Christmas bonuses. This master is a boss who's gotten rich on the back's of others. And when he's called out for it, he gets defensive and he lashes out. In fact, if the third man looks like anyone in this story, he looks kind of like Jesus before both the Roman authorities and their collaborators in the temple. And that's going to happen and that's going to develop over the following two chapters. And what do the masters of empire do to Jesus for presuming to speak truth to power? They do what they do to every whistleblower. They vilify, shame, and humiliate him so that his words will carry no weight. And then they throw him in the outer darkness where weeping and gnashing of teeth are an Olympic event. And we, we who claim to follow this Jesus, what do we do? How do we live into this parable? Well, I think we speak up. We tell the truth about the exploitation of the poor and the vulnerable. We put our bodies in between the oppressed and the oppressor. When we hear about another black man being abused by the police, we refuse to remain silent. When we see the families of immigrants and asylum seekers torn apart, we resist. When we hear about the life of another young trans person ending violently, we cry out to the heavens. When we watch another woman being harassed and abused, we say, no! When we read about vulnerable people being evicted and left to survive in the streets, we find a way not only to help feed and shelter them, but to agitate for justice for shelter for food when we witness white nationalists openly advocate bigotry and threaten violence we don't sit idly by and hope everything turns out all right we 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 take sides we followers of jesus not only sound the alarm but also figure out a way to be in the middle of it organizing protesting lobbying healing dispensing the mercy denied by the merciless. No longer will the God of abundance desire for all of us to have that which is taken from those who have nothing. If Jesus is who we say he is, and if we are who we say we are, then the reign of God's peace and justice for all people is the new perspective from which we see everything. Amen.